the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. In today's episode, we'll be discussing diversity and inclusion in genetic counseling practice, research, and training using a recent Journal of Genetic Counseling article as a jumping off point. In this discussion, we are going to add to the conversations surrounding race and racism in our profession. But please know that this episode is certainly not meant to be exhaustive coverage of current events or advocacy opportunities. We hope this episode will help our listeners identify ways in which they can address disparities in genetic research and healthcare, and steps they can take to commit to an anti-racist and inclusive genetic counseling practice. While we are glad to bring you the content of this episode, we encourage you to take advantage of many other learning opportunities and actionable items through NSGC and your broader communities. First up, my co-host Naomi Wagner will speak with Kelly East and Rainy Moss, authors of Recruiting Diversity Where It Exists, the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative from the Journal of Genetic Counseling. Kelly leads the provision of genetic and genomic counseling for research projects and clinical services at Hudson Alpha, as well as the development of educational experiences and resources for healthcare providers, trainees, and patients. Rainy Moss is the program director for the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Department of Genetics, under the direction of Dr. Bruce Korf. Chief Genomics Officer for UAB Medicine. Following our conversation about this article, I will be speaking with Guyan Chan Smutko. Guyan was a cancer genetic counselor at Massachusetts General Hospital for 16 years, served as Assistant Program Director at Brandeis for four years, and is now Associate Program Director at the MGH Institute, where they are welcoming their second class this fall. And now over to Naomi, Kelly, and Rainey. Hi, I'm Naomi Wagner, and I'm really excited today to be here with Kelly East and Rini Moss. We'll be talking about a recent Journal of Genetic Counseling article for which they're both authors. So thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to be here. I wanted to start by asking a broad question. So the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative seems like a huge project. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some background information about the initiative. Sure. So the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative sort of got its start in late 2016 and came to fruition in 2017 after a number of researchers, both at UAB, namely Dr. Bruce Korf, as well as his colleagues at Hudson Alpha, Dr. Greg Barsh, and some others, discussed um, the possibility of doing a population genomics research study, um, knowing that Alabama is diverse. Um, and has diverse communities to better understand our communities, their perceptions of genomic medicine, as well as, you know, really digging into the ability to potentially present actionable results potentially to participants in these communities. So it's sort of birthed from there, and I'll let Kelly get into the science of the testing results of that, but really the history of the project started with that, along with Dr. Uh, Selwyn Vickers, who is the Dean of the School of Medicine at UAB. So I think Dr. Vickers and Dr. Korf sort of were on a phone call after a conference and said, hey, what do you think, because should we get this together? And it really came out of just the brainstorm of a couple of senior researchers here in Alabama that really believe in better understanding our diverse communities in Alabama with the goal of better understanding the disparities and how we can improve their health. Yeah, and on the, the science side, the goal, one of the goals was really to increase access to cutting-edge genomic testing to our citizens but you know, also doing that in a way that makes sense in terms of cost effectiveness and trying to offer the right tests to the right people. And so there's really, there's kind of two arms to the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative. There is a rare disease arm that is probably the, the arm that we'll talk the least about during this conversation. 
but that arm is a, a smaller arm. It's a smaller number of people that we have served with it, but it is aimed at children and adults who have rare genetic conditions that have gone undiagnosed that we are offering whole genome sequencing to. And then the other arm of the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative is what we call the population cohort, which is really open to any adult in the state of Alabama in a kind of unselected way. We're not having them meet any clinical criteria. They don't have to be recommended by their physician. It's really for anybody to get access to some genomic information. We are not doing genome sequencing on all of those people. That's a largely cost decision, but we're doing a genotyping array and returning known pathogenic and likely pathogenic variation across the 59 genes on the ACMG actionable gene list to those individuals. So that was the cohort that we spent the most time talking about in this manuscript and about how we have tackled this goal, this very lofty goal of recruiting a general population of adults across the state of Alabama. Great. Yeah, it seems like a huge undertaking. And I appreciated how the paper laid out the methods and the thought behind developing the study and the recruitment and participant engagement techniques. I was wondering, I know you've mentioned that the study is particularly focused on recruiting from Alabama's diverse population. And I wanted to know what are some of the systems in place to ensure that the study is carried out and was designed in an ethical and inclusive manner? Right. So a number of working groups were established at the onset of the research project to be sure that ethics and transparency and honesty really was at the forefront and foundation of everything that would flow from this study. So we had an advisory board that was established that represents stakeholders in some of these diverse communities and um, other you know, health, health leaders in rural Alabama and areas that would touch on some of these communities and have some guidance for us in terms of both how we designed the study, ongoing activities in the study, and then feedback as we change things. We also had a bioethics working group that includes Dr. Mariko Nakano at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Medicine and Dr. Stephen Shodake, who is the chair of the Bioethics Institute at Tuskegee University. And so everything that we do, whether it's patient-facing, participant-facing, our communications with them, our recruitment materials, is all vetted through this bioethics working group. Our community advisory board, we also provided some of those materials to them throughout our development of the protocol. And as we began to return the results, we also gave them examples of that so that we could kind of hear our, our literacy level. Is it appropriate for the communities we're seeking to serve and to hear from? And we changed some things, and we can talk about that later on. But the result of the feedback from that advisory board and our bioethics team leadership as well as our educations working group that Kelly East leads, we have continued to, it's kind of a living, breathing study. We've evolved it based on that feedback constantly and haven't been afraid to change some of that based on what we're hearing. So for example, Kelly can get into it, but I think we've changed our participant return results letter at least three times based on the feedback we're hearing from these community leaders as well as our community focus groups. So that's what we've used mainly to vet everything that we're doing. If there's any change, if we hear any concerns, some of these working groups and advisory boards have helped provide that guidance and that expertise from the communities to guide our work. It's awesome that you've been able to incorporate community members, it sounds like, from the beginning. And what it sounds like, what I'm hearing from you, is that also you're able to update the protocol or the materials from feedback from community members who might include potential patients, correct? That's correct. Initially, and, and Kelly may know more about this than I do because she's been with the project and, and working with some of these colleagues a lot longer than I have, because I came on at UAB specifically for this research study in early 2017. But initially, we talked about only recruiting participants that had a primary care provider. And then because of our feedback, knowing that there's health disparities and everybody has a primary care, we decided, no, we're going to go with the general population. So some of the participant choice that we give is, do you want your results shared with a primary care provider of your choice or not? And so participants can receive that information by themselves, or if they'd like, we can also share with the physician of their choice. So it does not require anybody to have a primary care provider or a provider at all in order to participate in this to further increase our community involvement and trust in the project. Interesting. That's a, I think you bring up a great point in that sometimes we don't 
know what might come up until we start asking the participants or the community members. And so I think this study highlights how important it is to involve people from the beginning from study design stage. So I know this paper in particular, it was focused on recruitment and it outlines how your group was able to notably increase African-American participation in the study over the course of just a few years. I'm curious if you can share how you were able to do that. Sure. So uh, I know we just talked a lot about community engagement and through the form of these working groups and our advisory board and some of the leaders from across the state that we've pulled together to help us kind of shape this program. One of the other things that we didn't just talk about that we did in those early, in that first year of the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative was doing some what we called facilitated deliberative groups across the state. So we did three of them in different areas of the state where we essentially pulled together a group of people who represented a wide array of stakeholders. They may not necessarily be leaders in their different groups, but they represent different groups from healthcare workers and patients and advocacy groups and business leaders and just really trying to pull in a diverse representation of those communities to let them hear about the project and give them some time to kind of talk about it amongst themselves and generate what they would consider to be priorities of it, things, and for them to offer as suggestions. And one of the big topics that we brought up in those different groups was recruitment, was saying, hey, this is our goal to have a diverse set of people that are involved in this and making sure that we're reaching our whole state. What ideas do you guys have? How, you know, let's think outside the box. Let's, let's kind of crowdsource some ideas. And some of the ideas that came from those groups, we then turned around and implemented with pretty great success. One of those is instituting some kind of pop-up recruitment sites. So we had initially, we started recruiting out of Birmingham in Alabama, and then we added some other kind of longstanding sites that are always there that you can sign up and go to go get enrolled in AGHI from. But in addition to that, you know, Alabama is a big state and there are people that live pretty far away from those standing, you know, constant recruitment sites. And so we're able to go into some of those smaller communities for one day or two days and have a pop-up recruitment. And sometimes those are in medical settings. Sometimes those are not in medical settings, but that was an idea that came out of these community groups where we had people talking about ideas and that has really, really been hugely beneficial to us and has been a big win. There were also suggestions that came out of those groups about ways to harness social media to help broaden our impact and the awareness of the initiative and something that we did in, uh, I think it was year two maybe, where we had some community leaders, specifically in the African-American community in Alabama, and specifically men that helped come alongside us and tell their story and help champion the program within some social media campaigns. And that those likely also contributed to some of that broadened awareness, potentially some, some broadened trust in it and just willingness for people to listen to our mission and consider engaging with us. So those are a couple of things that those we might not have, we might've come up with those ideas eventually on our own, but we certainly got to them much, much faster by just asking our community for ideas mm -hmm. and being, open to that, that feedback. And so those are some of the big things we changed. I think, you know, time also worked in our favor, right? That, that at this point, this isn't a brand new program in Alabama, not that everybody's heard of it, but it's been around a little while. It's not new. And so that I think also helps instill some level of, of trust in our community in that kind of the stability and just knowing that the program's been going on and trust in the institutions that are leading it. Mm-hmm. Do you think word of mouth helped as well? Because I did notice a, a much bigger increase more and more going from 2017 to 2018, but then to 2019, there was definitely an increase in the participation by African-American participants in the study. And I was wondering if, you know, over time, word of mouth was helping with that as well. Yeah, I would suspect so. Um, we don't have any hard data mm -hmm. that we can point to that say that absolutely was part of it. But one could imagine that word of mouth and as people engage with it and hopefully have a positive outcome from it, that they tell other people, which helps bolster that trust and that interest in it as well. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned these pop-ups, which seem to be quite successful. Who were the people manning the booths or being there at the pop-ups to help with the recruitment? I'm really glad you asked because I, I was just smiling thinking about as Kelly described sort of that word of mouth because I think this is a great segue into this and something we're really excited to share is that 
our research team, our front-facing participants, were our patient navigation team. And that's out of the Department of Preventive Medicine at UAB, who does a phenomenal job of their, their patient navigation team. They work on so many different research projects in the diverse communities of Alabama. A lot of them are stakeholders themselves in their communities in a variety of forms. And so they already have really strong, authentic relationships with their communities, which really was the foundation of the AGHI and being able to reach into these communities. So I'm not from a very diverse background, but our leaders of our patient navigation team are. So for our community to see that we have leaders of color and leaders from these communities, I think was a really, really critical piece. We know that from health disparity research. So they're the ones that are the front facing. They're the ones that are sharing that information ahead of time in order to, you know, establish some trust, answer questions. Mm -hmm of the community, be respectful of any barriers or trust concerns that are happening. And then they really did a great job of communicating back to us what they were hearing from the community to be sure that we would be able to approach communities with respect and authenticity and, and select some of those pop-up clinics that, that Kelly was describing that were welcomed and maybe of value in those communities. So it's kind of a complex beginning to finish concept, but involved a lot of different stakeholders and diverse voices before we actually show up to consent participants in these communities. So our patient navigation team, they're the ones that are really manning these enrollment clinics. So in some of the rural areas of Alabama that Kelly spoke of, where we, for example, would go to a health department or we went outside of our own health network of UAB in South Alabama to Mobile Infirmary Health Network and the infirmary health network both in Baldwin County and Mobile County and we enrolled 300 people over the course of two or three days. Those participants didn't necessarily have to have their care there, but because of our patient navigation team and the communication that they're having, like you say, word of mouth, people were able to sign up either by phone or online it was a very, very popular pop-up enrollment. So sometimes we could take walk-ups, sometimes we couldn't. Mm -hmm. And our navigation team was used to the kind of the demand. So when somebody was not able to be enrolled, our navigation team would come right alongside them and talk to them about future opportunities. We'd call them back and follow up them to see if they were still interested and offer them opportunities that may be available in other sites and continue to be in touch with them about when we may be back in their communities if that's the place where they would rather enroll. So our navigation team, I really give a lot of credit to because they really were the smiling, authentic, transparent, honest faces and the relationships that really built the trust in these communities that ultimately chose to participate in the AGHI. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious, the patient navigators, what sort of scientific background or training do they have or personal experiences that made them excellent people to help with recruitment? So the patient navigators, they were and continue to be an integral part of our research team. We could not have had the recruitment success that we've had without that group of people engaged. That's a really interesting question. You know, they, all of the, the patient navigators come to the table with different experiences. It is a very non-homogeneous group, and that is a benefit to us, that we don't necessarily care too much how much science they know, what their genetic competency is. Their expertise is in helping patients navigate research. That is what they bring to the table, is that really, really critical expertise of being able to build relationships, build trust to help patients walk through the process. We, as the, the genetic counselors on the study, sure, we bring the genetic counseling to the table, and we've worked kind of hand-in-hand -hand with those patient navigators in providing some basic education and training and resources to them to be on those front lines. So developing frequently asked questions for them of the things that we thought out of the gate that patients would ask them a lot. And then also continue to have conversations with them as the project has gone on and they get questions that aren't on that FAQ page. And they ask us, we get them answers and we make that FAQ page even longer. Um, but it's that kind of two-way street of us giving them the information that they need to be able to answer the basic questions. And then when, if, if uh, kind of edge case questions come up, if they need help, we act as kind of a safety net for them and, and teach them the basics that they need to have those conversations on the front lines, which um, is uh, the, the, the best people that we could have had playing that role in this study. If I could add just real quick, um, you asked kind of who are these navigators? 
for example, I'm thinking of one particular navigator who is sought after for many, many research projects. She is a cancer survivor herself. And I think that's how she came into this employment role is she was very active in um, a cancer support network just as a survivor herself. So she does a lot of survivorship support groups. And because she's so connected with that community, she's one of our best navigators because she knows people. She can speak to the family history sometimes that people are coming to the table with. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of an example of some of these patient navigators and sort of how they are attracted to this role of, uh, of a calling in terms of employment to come into this role and be a part of this team. So that's an example of somebody I'm just thinking of specifically. And she particularly serves on our advisory board. So like Kelly said, some of the feedback we're getting um, from the navigation team, she's helping to kind of cull that information so that in a formal setting, when we met quarterly with that advisory board, she's able to speak directly to what she's hearing from participants in these communities that are coming to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the main highlights for me from reading this study, the article, was that it's so important to have uh, various members on the research team with a variety of backgrounds, community members, patients, researchers, genetic counselors, and it makes me think a lot of genetic counselors participate in research. Every genetic counseling student typically participates in a study of some sort, and I'm curious if there are any other lessons or advice you'd have for genetic counselors hoping to recruit people into studies um, that this initiative might be applicable to genetic counseling research in general? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And the the biggest answer as I thought about that is um, what we just talked about, is not trying to do it all ourselves um, and being uh, not just open and willing, but realizing when there are other people that can do some of these aspects of research better than, than we actually could. Um, they may not know genetics better than us, but their ability to engage with communities and to uh, recruit and consent communities um, may be superior to what we could bring to the table. Um, and that's something that we've really learned through this and have had good success with of, of bringing in other voices um, and kind of thinking outside the box in terms of who the, the research team um, is. Uh, and then, you know, asking uh, your, your community for advice, for help, crowdsourcing ideas has been really successful for us. And I think there's just a, a sense of knowing that you don't have all the answers and that's okay, you know, and that your, your community and your audience um, may have some really great ones. And be willing to, to adjust and make changes. Um, one of the, the things that we have changed over the course of AGHI um, and something that we, we didn't necess- necessarily see out of the gate um, is, and this is going to get a little in the weeds, but just as a really interesting anecdote, I think, is um, when we first started giving these results back to people, our, our genetic counselors do write uh, reports. So when we do find a, a result and someone has a, a risk factor that's identified, we write a, a patient-friendly worded report that uh, goes in the mail to that individual. We also pick up the phone and call that person and talk to them about it. They're offered in-person genetic counseling follow-up as well if they'd like it. Um, but we'd send out their results um, and people who get a negative uh, result where we don't find anything necessarily that jumps off the page, they get a letter. They don't, those folks don't get a phone call. We have way, you know, way too many people. We, we can't reach out to mm-hmm. everybody. We've kind of scaled it back to just proactively calling the positives. Um, and one of the things that we noticed that we were getting recurring questions around where people were, were picking up the phone and calling us, or they were reaching out to those navigators and asking them is we were sending out alongside our negative results where we said we didn't find anything. Um, we were sending them a list of all the genes that we tested. So the list of all 59 mm-hmm. genes. And mm-hmm. there was not an insignificant number of people who misinterpreted that as having all 59 conditions. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there were a number of people that called us that either asked that question or they said, hey, I think I'm understanding this correctly. This doesn't mean I have all this, right? And we're like, oh, heavens, no. Um, and so we, we learned relatively quickly that, that just sending that list of things that we um, were testing for, by sending that to them, they thought that was really about them, that we took the time to send them this list. It had to be that they were in, individualizing that mm-hmm. among themselves. 
Um, and so that was something that we went, oh my goodness, like we have got to stop sending this list out. We need to put, uh, put it on the website, let them go visit that if they want that. Um, but let's stop sending the, this list of scary, scary sounding mm-hmm. conditions out with these negative result letters. Um, and that's something that we changed over time because we, we listened and we um, were listening to our community, listening to the questions that we were getting and continuing to figure out how do we do this better um, in terms of process, in terms of what information we're putting in our uh, participants' hands. Yeah, that's a great point and a great finding. It's it's quite standard in our field for a test report to have the list of conditions and genes tested for. And many of us may not have stopped to think about what that looks like to the patient when they receive, you know, 10 pages of gene names and stuff like that. So great findings, I'm assuming, are coming out of the study as you move forward. I'm curious if you can share what's next from this study. What can we hear? What comes next after recruitment? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um we've got a number of things that we're kind of working on. AGHI continues to go forward in the, the current form that was described in this manuscript. We, this is still an ongoing um, study, but as we've had now a, a number of people go through the study, get results, and then um, hopefully to take those results and do something with them, we do have some kind of follow-up studies that we're currently actively involved in asking questions around outcomes, for example, trying to figure out what are people doing with these results? Who are they talking to? What medical actions are they taking? Are we um, making an impact beyond just giving information? Is that actually translating into personal and clinical utility for these individuals? And so that's some research that we currently have um, ongoing that we're, we're collecting data on and hope to be able to, to share um, in, the, in the near future. Um, the other kind of from a research standpoint thing that we're really interested in exploring further that we've got some ongoing research around is, is looking at individuals where we've found genetic changes um, and when we look back at their family history, the family history that they told us when they were, when they enrolled in the study and they filled out some information, um, it doesn't jive. And so trying to dig more into what's actually going on there, is there a true discordance between what's happening in their family history and their test result, or is there some failure in the way that we're asking those questions? And so um, thinking about the way that we collect family history information, thinking about the way we think about penetrance of the, the variants in these genes. Those are places where we're hoping that with the, the numbers that we have with the Alabama Genomic Health Initiative that we'll be able to do some digging and contribute to um, those areas of research as well. So that's the research side of things. Um, we also have just some, some additional goals and things that we're thinking about heading into as AGHI goes forward. And Rini, do you want to talk a little bit about those? Sure. I'm very eager to get started, but as you might suspect, COVID-19 has really put a wrench in um, our ability to do this. So we're currently uh, working through that in terms of our social distancing. But in the meantime, we have started some conversations um, with some clinics with the goal of really moving what we call AGHI 2.0 anecdotally what would it look like to have genomic medicine part of primary care? In the same way that, you know, if you're of a certain age, it's time to get a, you know, colonoscopy of a certain age, it's time to do a mammogram. What would it look like if um, our primary care and family medicine physicians would ask some of those family questions to determine whether or not genetic screening would be valuable to their patients and their families? So that's kind of the area we're moving into now and potentially piloting with some clinics where we would provide genetic screening to the patients. Now, this would be different than what we've been doing in the population because the goal is really that we would strengthen that physician and patient relationship about that information. So it would require participants to be in the care of a physician and that that information would become part of the physician relationship. So part of their medical record, if something were to be found. So that's a little bit different. Kelly mentioned outcomes research that will continue in terms of understanding why some people may opt for that, why some people may not. But our family and our primary care physicians that we've spoken to are very excited about this possibility to be able to offer to their patients. In some cases, we have some young residents that are coming into these clinics and, uh, you know, to be able to be in your residency and this be part of your training. Is this the future? Um, We think so. We think it's very valuable information. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) We do. (laughs) 
um, you know, I'm not a genetic counselor. I'm a program director. Those are not conversations that I've had with my doctors up until now. Um, but now they are. And um, if you have a family history in your family and you go see your primary care doctor, is that something that could be part of your primary care in terms of your, your just standard of care? So that's really where we're moving in this direction now is potentially integrating some of our um, AGHI genetic analysis and screening into medical care and engagement with the medical providers. Yeah, I think that's great. And it kind of circles back to the topic of recruitment because not a genetic counselor meeting with someone in a city where often genetic counselors are is not going to work for everyone across the country. So I think it's great this 2.0 version of the study might address recruitment in a different way as well. And I'm definitely looking forward to hearing about the outcomes and future studies from your group. Thank you so much for sharing and I can't wait to hear more from your group. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. To read Kelly, Rainey, and their team's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org forward slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. Now I'm excited to welcome Guyan to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Guyan. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So just to kind of give us a little bit of context, in the last few months, a lot of social movement, you know, has taken front and center stage, and it's spurred a lot of conversations at different levels of society, and certainly within our community and our industry, and uh, the topic of diversity and inclusion is one that is very salient to our profession and so one of the topics I really wanted to chat with you about today is just that. So diversity and inclusion. We just heard from Naomi who chatted with Kelly and Rainey about um, study design and recruitment. And so I was just wondering from your perspective, can you share some of your experiences, you know, in specifically the educational space or the patient space? Sure. Thank you. I would say that probably one of the most salient aspects of the education space and how diversity and inclusion operates there is that I really want to acknowledge how much I've learned from my students and from my peers. It's always been a privilege to work with students as a clinical supervisor and now as a full-time um, educator. And to the social movement that you are referring to, it, it has always been an imperative for us to think about how we operate and how we practice. But I'm even more galvanized by the student thesis projects that I've been working on and um, the topics of inclusion and diversity within our profession through um, supporting uh, my students' ideas. And these are students who are now colleagues. So, you know, that's certainly an example of kind of that perpetuation of making sure that we maintain social justice as, um, as in every part of our conversation, whether it's um, in patient care setting in the educational space. And my work has also been centered on in, when it comes to patient care and, and research is understanding the social emotional needs of emerging young adults with von Hippel-Lindau disease and, and FAP. When it comes to the classroom, um, I think that is the area where many of us are kind of familiar both from our grad school experiences, but also as instructors. I think it's, it's one of those things that I first started out teaching cross-cultural genetic counseling principles, and, and that, was, that was really important. But I, even in that time when I first started teaching back in 2014, it was always in the back of my head. I'm like, this is not enough. This is not enough. You know, I need to make sure that we embed and infuse inclusion and principles of inclusion and what that means in the patient to provider dynamic, but also the peer to peer dynamic and uh, student to teacher dynamic. So I have to also highlight and you know, give light to the fact that none of my current awareness or anything that I say right now is me operating in a vacuum. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So not only do I want to honor 
my students and peers, but also Liza Toulousen. She um, was a former patient of mine and continue to be connected with her family, but we are connected bi-directionally professionally because Dr. Toulousen also does race work and she's a longtime educator. And it's really her guiding light that has helped me hone many of my principles that are applicable, I think, in, in both patient care and, and, and education. She's quite an inspiration, isn't she? <laughs> she absolutely is. I mean, we all often talk about self-reflection as an important core tenant as genetic counselors, our relationship to ourself is so important and how we understand our contributions to our interactions with folks, right? We talk about a person like Liza, who is so emotionally available and vulnerable and willing to bring her experiences forward so that um, we can all learn from her. So yeah, she's pretty special. You know, one thing that you said that struck me is the idea that some of the teachings that you did, and certainly that I also did when I was in clinic and um, would have students rotate through my inner city hospitals that were very diverse, is the notion that, you know, what we were doing is not enough. And that resonates with me because I spent a lot of time teaching and talking about diversity because we would have, you know, students from programs come into an environment where they might not have been acquainted with the populations that we were handling and serving or understood the languages, but the idea of inclusion was one that was very different and it's different to teach. And so in that teaching space, concretely, what are some things that we can do as most of us genetic counselors are mentors in one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. To kind of help our colleagues do a better job of that diversity and inclusion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about one-on-one. We can talk about the classroom as a whole. Um, I think the principles are very applicable. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll start with the classroom. I think, you know, for me, it's really important to create a classroom environment that values the experiences that students bring because students are not vessels to be filled with new knowledge. Yes, they are here to acquire new knowledge and apply new skills and develop skills, absolutely. But we all come to our understanding of science and the world around us through the lens of our own experience. And we need to value our students' experience and create safety so that they are comfortable sharing sharing their experiences with each other and uh, co-creating an environment of peer-to-peer connection. And so that's that's definitely the safety piece, you know, validating that your experience is just as valuable as the dominant narrative that we often have been educated in, right? We, we are mm-hmm. all educated in a space that was created by people that, that don't look like me, for sure. Um, but I'm a product of it as well. So so that's so creating that safety is important, but I also feel that in education, we are cultivating lifelong learners, right? And that lifelong learning aspect, which is so baked into our profession, um, is so important when it comes to the principles of, of inclusion and what that really means. So mm-hmm. when we start to listen to each other, we start to learn in a whole different way. And what we really need to do is not only create a safe environment, but move the needle towards creating brave spaces for brave conversations. Some folks call it difficult conversations. Some folks call call it courageous conversations. I'm going to continue just saying calling brave spaces because brave spaces allow for that discomfort zone, just enough discomfort where you can kind of acknowledge, oh, maybe the way I see the world isn't isn't exactly the way the world is maybe there are multiple layers maybe there are multiple ways of looking at the same thing maybe i can better understand my patient um, who i feel really needs to have genetic testing but does not um is not heading in that direction what is that raising in myself um and that is resisting the path on which my patient is following, mm-hmm. you know, am I creating this resistance all on my own because of my own biases? 
when I really should be listening to my patient and listening to them and, and asking the right questions. But the Brave Spaces in the classroom acknowledges that we don't know everything, that we can be wrong, <laughs> that we make mistakes. And we recognize that it's our responsibility to reflect on them and challenge them. So it's a gradual buildup of trust where we can learn from each other. And that's really very important in these um, supervisor and student dynamic as well, not one-on-one -on -one dynamic. Uh -huh. um, that dynamic does go two ways, right? We do want to think about calibrating it such that we are learning from each other because there is so much to learn. And when it comes to designing courses, we also need to think about our end goals. Think of a little bit about relinquishing control in the classroom if, if you're the instructor, and perhaps even relinquishing a little bit of control if you're the supervisor. Because, you know, if your end goal is that by the end of this rotation, my student will have developed their sense of style um, in, when it comes to counseling. What does that really mean? Okay. And, and how do I um, actualize that in my relationship with my student? If your end goal of your course is my students will review study design with a critical eye, challenging current practices in ascertaining race and ethnicity data and analysis of such data. Okay, now you have, you have end goals and you create assignments and you create discussion prompts and you create assessments that, that get at that end goal. I think about end goals and outcome measures and I think about engagement too. So the kind of the two-prong question mm -hmm. is how, how do we teach that engagement but also how do we measure the outcome, especially when the goal is not quantifiable? I think when it comes to engaging students in social justice issues, that's part of your question, right? I think it certainly stems from us. If we truly believe that issues of equity and justice are pertinent to everything that we teach, whether it's intro to counseling, intro to genetic counseling, or whether it's uh, medical genetics, prenatal genetics, uh, teratogenics. There's always something in the material that you're teaching that is relevant to society and relevant to all issues. The readings that you select, do they, are, do they promote a broad perspective? Are there other sources like podcasts and blogs and um, interviews and books written by voices that you haven't considered including before in your curriculum? And also having the students have some say in where they want to take their learning can sound a little um, unnerving, but it's actually a huge part of adult learning principles because you can provide some of the framework saying, you know, we're going to talk about the ethics of patient care and, but they can, you know, bring in readings that are interesting to them and discussions that are interesting to them. So I think it's really that recognition that the skills that we have as genetic counselors are applicable to discussing topics of an inclusion and, and also of just social justice and self-examination and critically reviewing literature mm -hmm. and reviewing how we design studies. So I think it's really quite broadly applicable, especially if that is the mindset that you approach your curriculum. And then when it comes to measuring, I think it's not just what skills do I want our student, my students to have gained by the end of my course, but it's kind of like what do I hope they will become by the time they graduate too? You know, self-sufficient, curious, you know, whatever those words come to mind that, that are important to their development so that they come out being socially conscious um, genetic counselors is, is the way, I think, to measure that. And we like to measure as, as genetic counselors and gather data, and you can gather data. There are um, great um, survey instruments that you can apply halfway through your course, at the beginning of your course, and at the end of the course, asking slightly different questions. If inclusion is the main thing that you want to embed in your course, and again, whatever the subject matter might be, five weeks into your course, you can ask the question, is there something that you would like your professor to know? 
that invitation alone invites students to um, share with you if they want to, if they're struggling or if they're loving this course or if there's something they're just not getting. Um, and also kind of the acts of um, showing some vulnerability in, in, in your own, if you want to value your students' experiences as um, assets to their to everyone's learning, mm -hmm. putting some of your own experience into the dialogue can be very helpful. Things that mistakes that you've made and learned from, or things that challenge you, and how they challenge you, can be very helpful as well. So, um, yes, outcome measures are really important, but it is a little bit challenging. And, and maybe for your curriculum as a whole, as a program, a measure could be all of our students by the end of their two years critically examine the literature for areas of gaps and inadequacies in study design that didn't provide a cogent argument for why race and ethnicity was analyzed in the data. You know, something like that can be measurable. Yeah, I, I think some of the key takeaways that I'm hearing are, at least for me, are going back and, you know, we're a rotation site for a number of programs at my work and just going back and looking to see through our materials and our aims through this lens of what is our goal for specifically diversity and inclusion within the program and how we can better serve that need. But the other side of it is something that you've mentioned with asking the student, you know, from the outset and at the end, because I think we do that with more objective things like specific learnings and where students see themselves going, you know, and what, what they can learn from our rotations, speaking from a, you know, supervisory role. But um, mm -hmm. I think this adds a dimension that I don't necessarily know that a lot of us have incorporated or specifically ask about, you know, and I think it's salient and relevant now. And it speaks to a lot of things that you've spoken about from, you know, engagement, creating safe spaces, but also perpetuating a commitment, right? Mm -hmm. Learning, learning within um, these programs and rotations and committing to the cause, I think is, is what I'm also hearing you say. So I'm so glad that you brought up commitment because we can apply a structure or a framework to how we operate, whether the organizational level is a large level like NSGC or within our team, um, whether it's a clinical team, research team, um, or if you work in a patient services team, whatever that setting may be, bringing light and giving voice and creating a commitment together can be very valuable to a team. I'm working with a team right now of 15 genetic counselors in the clinical setting. And they asked me to help facilitate dialogue around race because the pervasive question is, what can I do? And I think that's an important question that many people have probably been reflecting on. But reflecting on that question as a team together can be very powerful um, because you can then identify areas in which you want to take that question and turn it into action. And um, one of the things that they are currently working on is a commitment statement. You know, when it comes to our philosophy around social justice and anti-oppression, what does that look like? For them, they have been structuring it as myself and how I in, engage in self-examination and, and understanding my biases and then widening that circle to peer-to-peer -peer interactions, widening that circle to, to provider and patient interactions. So that commitment statement is by necessity aspirational, mm -hmm. but from that, you can also draw on, okay, uh, we have an open position. We wanna hire, how do we ensure that we are practicing our hiring through the lens of equity? And, and advocating for equity, not just thinking about it, but advocating for it. Okay, well, we said we want to commit to the philosophy that diverse identities are assets to our profession, are assets to our group. And so how do we ask questions when it comes to interviewing a candidate, 
on um, what their philosophy is and how they have put their philosophy into practice. What settings have they applied um, the principles of, of equity and, and, and inclusion and diversity in their own practice or in their own um, graduate work? So, so that commitment can take a formal shape, something that is a living document that you work together on as a team. It can be your program team, it could be your admissions team, whatever that team may be. And so it's a personal commitment as well. You will find yourself in situations where you have going to ask yourself, am I willing to take a risk here? And, um, and that's a hard question. It's a hard question, but I want to kind of bring in and incorporate the teachings of Eliza Toulousan's model, which is name it, own it, and interrupt it. You know, if you see bias happening, if you see barriers um, in patient care and in equity, if you see something, you probably have an idea of how to interrupt it, but sometimes it's really, really hard to name what's happening, actually, um, because that requires an examination of what's my gut reaction here? Why am I reacting to this? What is it about me that is creating a reaction? And um, why is it that I'm not acting right now? You know, you go through a myriad of questions, but you, you do need to go through those questions and answer them and then still come up with that question. What am I willing to risk? Because we all have certain privileges and many of them are educational um, and social privileges, because if you think about all the circles in which you operate, whether you are a supervisor or you are an instructor or you, whatever area that you operate in your community and your professional life, those are your circles of influence, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a, probably by now attained a good amount of privileges and, and equity there. So can you leverage that and risk your privileges just a little for the sake of someone else, whether it's a group of people or an individual. And if you conclude yes, then you are really very much on your way of um, naming it, owning it, and interrupting it. As uncomfortable as it is, it can be challenging, but that is really core to the commitment. And I think that that commitment piece is something that um, we're all starting to think about, right? Because I think diversity and inclusion was always on the radar. Um, now, I think with all these conversations that are happening at all levels of our profession, we're thinking more concretely about goals and execution. And then the next step to that is commitment. Guy, and thank you so much for joining me today. I feel we could talk for, you know, five more hours. I hope that our listeners will have walked away with at least one, if not several little nuggets that can be put into practice, whether it is at an individual level or within the profession. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this opportunity. That concludes this month's episode. Don't forget to rate the NSGC podcast series wherever you're listening to this episode and encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.